Shalom, shalom, beautiful friends. That was Va'anita Filati, that uh, we don't say prayer, that our essence is a prayer. Our, our very essence of uh, who we are is uh, what we stand for and what we say and what we do. That's how we pray in the world. We pray through our actions, right? The things we say to people, the things we do, our, our, our whole life is our prayer. Um, we're very into books these days, writing books and reading books. But the truth is our whole life is a book. Our whole life is a, a song. Our whole life is a prayer that we're constantly singing with everything we're doing. So thank you for being a part of that that uh, that prayer in Nigun with me me here. And and um, and thank you, Sarah. Um, so friends, uh, this is going to be our shortest of presentations, partially because I am one of many who just doesn't really understand Derrida so much. Um, and uh, I'm not sure he understood himself so much either. <laughs> um, uh, but it is a good jump off point into how we read text and how we think about ideas. And um, even though we're going to word, use words that don't make much sense to him and don't make sense to much people who read him, we're still going to use those words. Um, and, um, and we'll see where that takes us. And um, I do want to correct one thing. We're saying we're in session 40 here. But I made a great mistake in skipping Freud. Freud is not a philosopher. Freud's a psychologist. But he impacts philosophy enough that we got to go back and include Freud. So in like two sessions, we're going to do Freud. And I thank Alex for catching my mistake. And, um, and uh, you know, um, I think Freud would appreciate that I forgot him because he was like in my unconscious realm, but just not in my 
not in you know not not sitting on that conscious level. So <laughs> he was like in there, but not 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 out there. Yeah, and Einstein. Yeah, oh my gosh, Einstein. But, you know, maybe we should just take this to a thousand. We can keep going with this. But um, yeah, we have some fun things to come for anyone who's not sick of me. Um, and if you're sick of me, but you're certainly not sick of this great group, I hope you'll stick with us <laughs> past these coming weeks because our Tuesdays will continue in, in different in different forms. So let's start with a little poll question here. The poll questions are exercises in futility of how to pose questions that, you know, never can fully encapsulate, you know, the, <laughs> the entirety of what we might think about. On language, language is empty. Language is where, language is where most truth is found. Language is so limited, but so valuable. What do you think, friends? Either language is empty. Language is where most truth is found. Language is so, this feels similar to last week. This wasn't a question last week, was it? No, it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> okay, I thought it would look like that. Nobody says language is empty. I would hope not. 22% um, feel that language is where most truth is found. Because how else can we really understand our past and our lives and our relationships without language? 78% say language is just so limited, but also so valuable. Um, this is one of the great philosophical debates of... Um, how adequately we can express what we feel and what we experience. Sometimes I feel I'm so inadequate at doing that because I'm simply not smart enough and don't have enough language to um, convey my experiences and feelings. And if I were smarter and better versed, I would um, be able to do it. And sometimes I feel like, no, the problem is not just me. The problem is language itself. In any case, friends, Doc Derrida. Um, who was born in 1930 and passed away uh, just 20 years ago in 2004. Jacques Derrida was another philosopher who was born Jewish in French Algeria in 1930. Derrida was definitely within the post-structuralist and post-modern camps, but he distanced himself from both of those worlds. That's a pretty common thing for philosophers to do, to neatly fit into a camp, but say they're not in the camp. They don't want to be in a camp. Right? The main critique of Derrida is that he is deliberately difficult to understand, many say. His famous idea is the philosophy of deconstruction, which there's no way to define. And um, there's countless, maybe dozens, conflicting definitions. But one might say, at least this is how Stanford says it, is a way of, of criticizing not only both literary and philosophical texts, but also political institutions. Right? We're basically breaking down text from their common assumptions, their common understandings. And in doing so, it attempts to render justice, not, not justice as we have been using it, but in a new sense, like in kind of an intellectual sense. Indeed, deconstruction is relentless in this pursuit since justice is impossible to achieve. Uh, there's a misunderstanding. There's a misread. Right? We have to break it down beyond how it's been understood. In the words of philosopher Mark Taylor on what Derrida meant, the guiding insight of deconstruction is that every structure, be it literary, psychological, social, economic, political, or religious, that organizes our experience is constituted and maintained through acts of exclusion. In the process of creating something, something else inevitably gets left out, 
right? So there's so many ways to play around with this. And to be sure, he was not interested in a method. He doesn't offer a method. He, he says, don't think I'm offering you a method. Uh, it's not like, oh, here is now how you read a text instead of how you normally did it. But it offers enormous creativity. For example, you might say, when you read the story of the binding of Isaac, well, Isaac talks, uh, excuse me, Abraham talks, but what is Isaac thinking, right? And what is Ishmael thinking, Is right? And where's Sarah's voice, right? They are excluded from the text and we don't hear their voice. Can we go back and inject their voice in, right? Um, can, and um, going back to just psych psychological, because this is connected to psychoanalysis as well, we have assumptions, even dogmas about how our brains work, how our minds work. Maybe you read books like Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. Maybe you read books that kind of tell us, right, um, how people think and, um, and how typically, you know, our psyches operate, right? But then if we deconstruct that a little bit, we see what's been excluded from those assumptions, and we offer a new read, right? A new paradigm, a new, a new, a new um, textual analysis, if you will, on the human mind. What Derrida was doing was attacking reason's pretensions to provide systematic and absolute explanations of the world, right? He hates grand theories. Right? Here's a grand theory of history. Here's what's really happened throughout the world. Here's what's really happened right, in the human condition, says, uh-uh, like these universal grand theories are so simplistic and we need to challenge those and show the holes in those, right? Now, it's true, you can make a lot of money writing a book or making a TED Talk saying, here's, the, here's what's really going on in history, right? But he wants, to, he wants to expose those. Whereas many thought language accurately depicted reality, for example, Derrida saw this as something of an illusion a fact which could be discerned when one carefully examined the meaning of text, right? The inadequacy of language in understanding a text. By looking at them closely, deconstruction showed how texts cannot offer any clear and unambiguous meaning. And, and any attempt to claim that they do always requires repressing other possibilities or making claims to authority that cannot be justified. This is one of the reasons I, I don't like literal reads. Well, well, let me walk that back. Why I don't like literal reads as the primary and sole explanation of text. Think about literalists on the American Constitution, right? Think about literalists on the Bible. Um, now, to be sure, when I say literalists on the Bible, I mean both the secularist and the fundamentalist. The fundamentalist says, oh, the Bible says the world's created in seven days. There's no other way it can be. The world was literally created in seven days because that's literally what the text says. The secularist falls in the same trap. They say the Bible's not true because the Bible literally says the world was created in seven days. And of course it wasn't. The secularist falls into the same trap of the fundamentalist in thinking that the only way the Bible speaks is in, in, a, in, a, liter, in a literal voice. So, too, with constitutional inter interpretation, those who think that what the Constitution offers us is simple, simply the literal read of the text. And the literal read of text are so weak. So, too, and, and this would often be a gendered critique of a woman upon a man, 
although it certainly goes beyond that and shouldn't be limited to such, you know, such a stereotype, would be the notion that um, the literal words one says in the relationship is what should be understood as the sole thing that's being conveyed, right? Like, you said X, Y, Z. I know I said X, Y, and Z, but you know I mean A, B, and C, and you know I also feel, you know, L, M, N, O, P, right? And so just because I said X, Y, Z, you know there's a whole bigger context of what's going on here. Don't, like, treat the words I said as, like, a literal text, right? Um, and so, um, and so too, like, in psychoanalysis, the, the words that I say laying on the couch, right, are only the starting point of what's going on in the psyche, right? There's a there's a subtext below that text. Okay, so Derrida's famous quote here is, there's nothing outside of the text. Oh, what? That's what he says. There's nothing outside the text. Now, here he's not saying, oh, the, the, the literal read is all we have. But he's kind of critiquing Plato. Or when I say Plato, I mean kind of like uh, a platonic view of texts that think there's kind of this grand meta meaning meaning beyond the text, right? He's actually like, no, no, stay in the text, deconstruct the text rather than uh, you know have this 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 grander assumption. If some of the things I'm saying don't make any sense, that's okay. Um, text for Derrida cannot tell us some outside world truth, right? The text doesn't tell us some grand theory of the universe. They just tell us about the text themselves. The text is about the text, not about life. And even then, their meaning is far more open than it is closed, right? The fact that someone is saying something profound to me does not tell me something profound about life. It tells me something profound about the words that person is speaking in this moment, right? Stay in the moment, stay in the words, don't extend them more broadly. So to Derrida, there is no stable, stable is an important word here, there's st no stable way to talk about truth as it emerges from language. Everything is unstable. Language is inadequate to express truth in any absolute sense for him. However, the illusion that language can express unambiguous truths is at the heart of what Derrida calls the metaphysics of presence. Since its very beginning, philosophy has aspired to make unambiguous claims about human beings, the world, and the nature of existence, right? Zoom back from post-modernity back into modernity. Philosophy is here to tell us what is the human being? Who are we fundamentally? What is the meaning of life in its core, right? What is the origin of the universe and where we're ultimately headed? Philosophy at attempts to do the bold and courageous and tell us what is true, right? Chutzpah dick, it's chutzpah dick. Philosophy and modernity says, we got it figured out, right? We, we figured it out. We got reason, right? We've got, it we've got analysis and we are at the pinnacle of, of all human history in, in our notion of progress to now understand exactly what's going on with God and with politics and with humanity, and with the soul. Post-modernity comes and says, oh, I'm not so sure about that. Not so sure about all those structures you have. Not so sure about your confidence. Not so sure about progress. Uh, <laughs> Marty Kroc. <laughs> you have to unpack what that means, Aglaia, because I'm not sure I know yet. Um, so, um, so so, to hear, don't, don't be so sure that language is going to tell us all of these, all of these truths. 
Since its beginning, philosophy has aspired, once again, to make unambiguous claims about human beings, the world, and the nature of existence. For Derrida, such claims always fall far short of what they promise. You can never know human nature. You can never know the, the capital T truth, particularly when one examines the texts they purport to demonstrate them. As Derrida saw it, every text has contradictions in it. Every text has contradictions. No text is fully coherent. And deconstruction offered a way of trying to read texts while aware of gaps. <laughs> As a result, it enables one to be skeptical of the kinds of metaphysical claims so often used to perpetuate systems of hierarchy. So, um, yeah, so go back to Foucault, right? Remember in Foucault, we talked about how uh, truth claims are power moves. That's not to say that truth claims are just deceptive. It's just that language uh, has power and, and conversation of values is really a discourse of power. So too, um, Derrida wants to say that the texts that we under that we use to understand ourselves also have kind of hierarchies built in them. And again, in all directions, everyone is kind of making a power move, um, and sometimes conscious and sometimes uh, uh, unconsciously. And we should think about that when we're when we're talking, when we're emailing, when we're communicating, like. Like, what are the dynamics of power involved in communication? Right again, not power is a dirty word, not power like power is corrupt, right? But power in the sense that we have interests, we have motives, we have agendas, right? Because we're humans and we have interests and we have we have desires, right? Many have noted the similarity between deconstruction and rabbinic hermeneutics, such as midrash which is also deeply sensitive to the way in which texts can offer multiple meaning, right? I mean, what's so radical about rabbinic Judaism is the complete overturning of literal text in the sense that um, the literal read of a text almost has um, little value left. You know, if, if you weren't at David Kasher's VBM class last week on the topic of eye for an eye for an eye, I hope you at least go back and listen to the recording uh, that that looks at how the literal read of eye for an eye is so deep, so far beyond the typical critique of Gandhi, you know, an eye for an eye makes the world blind. Um, the, an eye for an eye on a literal read can go much further than just the, the critique that it's barbaric, right? But um, but the non-literal read can go, can go much deeper as well. And the rabbis had little interest in a literal read, except for, um, you know, as discussed, the idea that it actually limits what one can do in a moment of 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 um, of justice or of in revenge, even um, you know, because typically you want to whack the guy even harder than he whacked you, right? And so, okay, you want you want to whack the guy, but don't whack him any harder than he whacked you initially. Maybe don't take any more than an eye. You think you can kill the guy? You can't kill the guy. All he did was take your eye. Okay, anyways, or if you're using it, it should be pash. You know, you, you know, you're gonna give someone a pack. <laughs> Anyways, however, where deconstruction is often used to undermine claims of authority and power, Midrash, on the other hand, uses the inconsistencies and contradictions of texts as a license to fill in the gaps and expand the meaning of the text. Okay, let me let me let me say that again. For someone like Derrida, you might say that. 
a contradiction in a text undermines the authority of the authors. It undermines the authority of those who use the text to show power. The rabbis want to do the opposite. The contradictions in the text actually adds a new layer of authority to the text in that it shows new layers of meaning um, within it. The inconsistencies and contradictions in the text actually expand the meaning of the text. Let me give a famous example. Genesis chapter 1 and, um, and Genesis chapter 2 contradict each other enormously, as we've discussed uh, some months ago, and as you probably know. And according to the Bible critics, it means two authors. Oh, one fellow wrote chapter 1, one fellow wrote chapter 2 because of the inconsistencies. Okay, that's one read. According to a rabbinic read, uh-uh, the contradictions in the two chapters show a contradiction in human nature. One, one chapter is about the lowliness of the human being, how non-egalitarian we are, how we're just dust and ashes. The other chapter shows our equality of human beings, the nobility of the human being, and how we're so godlike and capable of, of making a difference in the world. And rather than those contradict, it shows existentially how human beings are both nothing and everything. Human beings are unfair and uh, profound and profoundly noble. And um, and we can find many cases like that. And in fact, one of the great rabbinic enterprises is finding contradictions. Now, imagine we treated other people charitably like this as well. Let's say you're in a relationship and the person contradicts themselves. Last week, you, last week you told me you love spaghetti. This week, you tell me you can't stand spaghetti. What kind of, are you a liar? Are you a hypocrite? What's your deal with spaghetti? I mean, it's, it's a funny, trivial example that means nothing, but you get the point, right? So you could say, oh, I don't trust you anymore. I, I, make, you I make you spaghetti this week. You tell me you hate spaghetti, but last week, you know, you love spaghetti. So, or you can say, how interesting. I'm so curious about you. Last week, you weren't so into spaghetti. This week, they're dieting. Good, good. Nice, this, you know, this week, they're off carbs, right? Which I can never get off carbs. I did it once. And anyways, um, I'm so curious about you. Last week, you, you, you know, you were into spaghetti. This week, you're not. There's something I want to learn about you because there's a depth to you and in your inconsistency. Your inconsistency doesn't expose your lies. It doesn't expose your inadequacy. I want to deconstruct the text of your relationship to spaghetti so that I can understand more deeply your, your, your profound relationship to spaghetti in a way I never understood before, right? Imagine that. Imagine if we thought our relationships like this. Right? Um, you know, it's actually, uh, 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 it's actually funny. My, my, uh, my son doesn't like uh, when I take him to school because if, if, if my wife takes him to school, he gets to go late and not go to the early care where he hates the early care. If I take him, I got to get to work early. I got to take him to early care. So he's so upset when I take him to work, he goes to early care. But yesterday they did a jumping activity and he loved early care. So I'm like, this is amazing. Oh, so, but then this morning he says, I'm never going to early care. So I'm like, geez, this five-year-old, he's got so many contradictions about early care. What's going on over here? You know? And I'm, and I'm realizing like, 
the depth of what's going on in his own heart and how he's processing like this space and all the different feelings of who's there and what he's doing there and who's taking him, right? I mean, if we brought this curiosity to life, if we brought this curiosity to life, you know, it's um, it's also, you know, one, one of my great weaknesses, one of my many great weaknesses is that I don't read fiction. I don't read fiction. My life, my my wife likes to read fiction. I'm kind of I'm I'm kind of a a, a cold learner. I love to learn the facts. I, I read nonfiction anytime I can, right? But you know what? Um, you know what? Like take immigration for a moment. There's those you know um, who want to be like ah the immigrant. They're all like this. They're robbers and stealers and thugs, right? These people who want to come into our country and steal right there's one narrative we're imposing we're imposing an understanding on the brain and mind and soul of of this person crossing the border now take the other person uh one of complete assumption of of one person of who this is oh this is a poor mother with with carrying her child fleeing the the mob that was going to kill her that night if she didn't leave and her only intention is the saving of her child right it's like we have these horrible political discourses that try to paint the complexities of moral and political issues as if there's one narrative in this person, right? If we're actually curious about people, right? We don't just have an immigration as a political story, as as a as a as, as a nonfiction book, but as a fiction story. We we talk to people and we hear their life story, right? We talk to people and we understand where they came from and why and and all the things they were feeling and going through and. We allow, if we didn't have a word like racism, right? Here's what racism is. Here's how everybody experiences it, blah, blah, blah. Like, talk to somebody. What was your experience? How did you feel, right? Like, there's all these, there's the multiplicity of texts in the world. Instead of tossing an ideology upon the world of human experience, we have to unpack and deconstruct the reality so that we understand the depths of what's going on in people. But we don't want to do that. And so part of this deconstruction movement is post-ideological. Ideology says everything fits in neat boxes. Here's what it means to, to, to feel like you're a Jew in America today. Here's what, it, here's what it means to be a, you know, a Chinese woman in 2024, right? Here's what it means to be, you know, a, a Guatemalan immigrant uh, teenager boy, right? Here's what it is. This is what it is. And in fact, many people don't want to go beyond the ideological. I just want one way of viewing the human experience, right? But part of what we're doing here is learning to listen more deeply, learning to see the fullness and the contradictions more fully. Okay, friends. So again, for us, contradictions are generative. We don't say a story is nonsensical well, in, in, in Jewish tradition. Because as aspects of the story contradict each other and then simply dismiss the story out of hand. Instead, we see contradictions in the text and in life as being there to teach us something profound. With regards to the Torah and its apparent contradictions, Rav Cook said it best. As you know, Rav Cook is my Rebbe. And so I go to Rav Cook a lot. Here's what Rav Cook says. We as yet do not know the specific nature of prophecy and divine inspiration, nor do we even know if it can be that there are no contradictions in prophetic and divinely inspired sayings, as is the case of well-reasoned lectures. 
For perhaps a phenomenon which is beyond our comprehension is also beyond our conditions for perfection. And all its contradictions are in harmony on some level, in no need of reason solutions. <clears throat> Nature does not fear contradictions, as does science, since it is incalculably greater than science. This is faith's majesty. So science doesn't want contradictions. Science wants answers. Nature, however, goes much further than science and is full of contradictions, right? Science is human's need for ideology. Our, I'm, not, I'm not putting down science. We need science, of course, right? But science is limited because we contain it within reason. Nature goes far beyond reason. It's unpredictable. I mean, profoundly unpredictable. So too, faith, however we understand faith, whatever we have faith in, right, is something that's full of contradictions, right? We should be wary of a contradiction that has, is kind of, has a neat bow on top of it, right? Um, the contradictions with it, within faith um, are part of our understanding that um, comprehension goes so far beyond um, the realm of reason. Faith is not a, a, contradiction is not a weakness in faith. It's, it's the virtue of faith. It, 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 it's, it's at the essence of what it means to reach beyond our grasp. So friends, as people of the book, we accept that language certainly can't convey everything. But we know that language can be the clothing of truth, to use the Kabbalistic term, the clothing of truth. And perhaps the only way we can approach it, while language can't fully describe God, for example, obviously, we cannot turn to God in prayer if we cannot address God by name. We need some kind of name, even if the only Hebrew name we have for God that we use is the name, because we don't have a name. Hashem, the name. There's a saying from Rav Sadok of Leblin. <clears throat> I heard in my youth that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created a book, and that book is the world. And the Torah is a commentary on that book. So I love that, um, that actually the world is, is a book and what the Torah is, is not a book, but actually a commentary on that book of life, on that book of creation itself. And our lives are books, our commentaries on those books. In the Jewish tradition, we allow texts to relate to each other across locations and across generations. We understand Maimonides in relationship to Nachmanides and Nachmanides in relationship to the Talmud. No text gives us the perfect truth in itself. But each one potentially points us to another text. That's the greatness of Jewish learning. It's always pointing us to other texts. And the meaning of one text can only be discerned in relationship to all of them. So too, this, this session that we're in each week together, um, this text only makes sense in relationship to Steve Tobin. Steve Shobin's text only makes sense in relationship to Aglaia's text, in relationship to Edouard's text. Right? Each, each of our commentaries on the text is necessary to understand the text, right? That's why our voices are so crucial in here. Um, and that's the greatness of this learning experience is that it's always pointing to new texts. It's never complete until each voice is kind of a part of the conversation. In deconstructing a text, you're not invalidating it as much as going deeper into its discovery. 
and seeing how incomplete it is without complementary works. So to be sure, Derrida certainly doesn't think the text itself can give us access to some absolute truth, in part because the truth, the text is inherently incomplete, and in part due to the limitations of language. Jews, on the other hand, are more committed to truth, as can be found in language, than what Derrida might say. This is, a, I, I, when I say Jews, I mean Jewish tradition, of course. Um, this is especially relevant in the realm of prayer. Do, Rabbi Dr. Alan Brill recounted Rav Shagar's use of Derrida in this respect. So this is this is Brill on Rav Shagar, on Rav Shagar in relation to Derrida <laughs> and, and how we're sharing it here. So it's like a, a, a bunch of different texts. Rav Shagar acknowledges that for many, their prayers are without benefit or hope. To offer a path of continuing to pray, despite this lack of hope, he finds a parallel to Derrida's prayer as without hope, in which Derrida nevertheless says, despite the despair and lack of hope, there's always a possibility of that one may be answered. Shagar equates Derrida's prayer without hope to Rebbe Nachman's void, the halal hapanui, which is seemingly empty without hope. However, according to Shagar, prayer has the possibility to cut through the void. In addition, God must be in his seemingly seeming absence, not because of a holism in which everything is God, rather because there is always the possibility of breaking through the void. In the meantime, prayer is an impossibility, yet we still pray. So that might have been nonsensical. Um, it probably was, and, <laughs> but um, a little bit of what's happening here is what we do with the, with the gap. What do we do with the hole in the text, the hole in an understanding of the divine, the hole within prayer, the, the possibility of crossing over the void, of filling in the gaps um, where, uh, you know, in meaning making, you know, in our lives itself. And part of this is about hope. Part of what hope is, is transcending those gaps of not knowing, transcending those those gaps of impossibility, of coherence, right? Our ability to stay in the game of 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 language of seeking. So, friends, to conclude here, yes, language has its limits, but whether in text or in speech, perhaps we have no better tool, and so we continue to construct and deconstruct and bring our voices together to make meaning where we know absolute meaning may never be reached. Okay, dear friends, um, that was a mouthful. And it was supposed to, oh my gosh, I, I, I told you at the beginning this was going to be the shortest of presentations, and then I carried, I got carried away. So I'm very sorry, but um, I'm very sorry. But uh, okay, Aglaia, I see you're ready to hop in here. And then Laura. Okay, so does anyone want me to tell the joke, explain the joke about Mardi Gras for, okay. The quick thing, yeah. quick way of saying it, though, is that well, one Mardi Gras is going on outside anyway, though. But the quick way of saying it, though, is that um, historians actually look at Mardi Gras as also this inversion of society, like it's basically supposed to invert everything. And so like class and 
well, we don't want to get into the whole blackface controversy, but anyway, though. So I just like when I was 23, my best friend, like I was a grad student at Tulane. My best friend had come to visit me from her grad program at MIT. And we had a little liquid philosophy in us, quite a bit of liquid philosophy in us at Pat O'Brien's at this point. But I started talking to her about like, well, it is, you know, like going about philosophy, like, well, it is possible to just not believe in anything. And so we're getting all philosophical and I'm telling her that there are no answers to everything. And so this atheist, this atheist person tells me, well, don't you think we have to believe in something at some point? So talk about inverting everything. Okay. So anyway, though. All right. So we just, we, you know, like completely inverted philosophy at that point. But anyway. All right. So here's where I was going to go with this. All right. Something that's inverting things again. All right. Um, the other thing about Derrida is that he actually has a lot of fun with paradoxes, which, you know, that that's one of my favorite things to do with, you know, our texts. So I'm just going to say one of his famous, um, most famous um, paradoxes, for instance, so was in on cosmopolitanism and forgiveness. There is only forgiveness if there is is any where there's the unforgivable now a lot of students have cursed my name for actually bringing that up and everything though and actually making them write papers on it but you know what i'm obsolete as a professor anyway i've already come to terms with that but anyway though i'm kind of wondering with this whole idea everything that we've been talking about today though well i mean it is kind of an interesting question to ask and then also think about it in terms of well what else is kind of impossible because you were talking about the well justice is justice actually possible well is there justice is anything so i don't know just throwing that out there awesome okay very nice all right i'm gonna i'm gonna leave a glance food for thought here for us um for people to engage with and lauren let's bounce over to you at first listening to it i thought it sounded like existentially depressed it just wow nothing but, but then as you start to talk about torah learning when i think of it now it's it's all deconstruction right russia used midrash Ibn Ezra used uh, Tiktuk. Um, there's many that I'm, I'm learning with a Rav now who's been teaching Kohelet, and he uses like Mishle and other things. Where was that phrase used before? Where have we heard that idea before, which is not unusual. And so all the Torah learning is is deconstruction. It, it's kind of wonderful, really. It just learns to more and more knowledge and more understanding. Great. Okay, great. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, the Sefer Mishlei, the book of Proverbs, um, is the most famous book in all of Tanakh for consistent um, contradictions uh, over and over again. Um, and there are so many, it would be hard to even know where to begin. One of the most uh, famous ones over there is it says, um, answer the fool in their foolishness. And then uh, in a different chapter, it says, never answer the fool in their foolishness. Um, and one place it says that the city rejoices when the enemy falls. And another place in Proverbs, it says, you shall not um, celebrate the downfall of your enemy, right? Now, so what do you do with contradictions like in Proverbs over and over? Some say, ah, they're really saying the same thing. And they do the work to say that the two contradictory texts are really doing the same thing. Others take the opposite approach and say, no, those two texts and the contradiction are teaching us two very different things. 
then you have the radical read of the briskers. And what the briskers do is they say, the contradiction clash produces a new insight beyond those two insights itself. So keep those in mind next time you see a contradiction in text. Do you want to tweak it so that the two are saying the same? Do you want to, um, uh, you know, um, build on the difference and show actually how we're learning two different truths? Or do you want to create a third truth from the contradiction? Thanks, Lauren. Hi, Sarah. As you were talking about the clashes of truth, I thought, oh, how Galian. I was struck by so many things from the beginning with the question, because the first question was, you know, about language and we're making sense of the world through language. And I thought, well, what did Helen Keller do in her blind, deaf, mute world before she began to learn about language? Did that mean the world didn't really exist? So language is irrelevant. It's experience. I guess I'm getting phenomenological. But um, the other thing that, another thing that struck me was when I was a kid, or for a very long time, everything needed to be in their neat little boxes. And it was years and decades and scores of years after that I realized that was early trauma that made me believe that things needed to be a certain way. And that contradiction for me now is a joy. It's the way that I have grown, that I learn, that I understand, because I have a chance to be curious, which I did not feel for so many years. So for me, language is an avenue for expressing what I believe in this moment is my truth. But I'm hoping that in the next moment, it won't. It will be a con contradiction because I have now explored deeper or further or expanded my horizons and my understanding of who I am and how my Oh, my universe is growing. Um, as for your, as for your uh, antipathy to fiction, I I had a very similar thing when I when I left practice. I started reading, and all I would read was nonfiction. It was like fiction has no place in my world. And then I discovered that fiction is the way that we help people connect to their emotions, to how they feel about whatever this ideology is, whatever this particular truth is that the writer may be offering us, that some of us cannot necessarily access that just through information. And so I've, I've learned to balance the two. I love knowledge. I love reading information, but I now have space and fiction in my life, and now I'm complete. I've said awesome. enough. Awesome. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, so much there, Sarah. I'll just dance with one or two things because you said so much, but uh, <clears throat> I think one of the choices we might make in our lives is where we wish to interpret charitably 
and where we wish to interpret uncharitably as it relates to inconsistencies. Uh, and, and, and that's building on, uh, you know, on the notion of paradox as well. So if, if I hear Putin, if I hear Vladimir Putin say um, something um, and it seems inconsistent with how he acts or something he said yesterday, I'm going to interpret Putin's words pretty uncharitably, right? That this is not someone that can be believed and it would be dangerous to believe. Nothing against salesmen. Perhaps there's people here who have made a great career in sales and nothing, you know, nothing at all. But there are some experiences within sales where inconsistencies might put me on guard, right? As to how, how I'm engaging with the buying of this product, right? Um, but there's other spaces and relationships where I want to interpret inconsistencies very charitably and um, and see the richness in those inconsistencies rather than question the integrity of them. And so too it, with paradox, that paradox can be a manifestation of inconsistencies um, that is very rich in our lives to be able to live with multiple conflicting truths at times um, and, and see how that's okay, be at peace with that. So I want to say that and I love your point about those who don't have the capacity for sight or hearing um, and how much is still being experienced beyond language. Um, and yeah, lots to say there. The one, Just the one thing I'll say is, you know, many of us have been at deathbed experiences, um, but there's something profound when the person dying um, can no longer communicate. There was something very meaningful just you know for myself for example with my mother six months ago when she was still communicating in her last days and what those what those conversations meant to me and there was also something pa painful to be sure but meaningful about the final days where there was no more talking almost being at peace with each other with each other um something very profound about physical touch and physical presence beyond language. Um, and um, that's something to think about as we prepare for some of those experiences we're all inevitably have of being bedside, of um, how we balance uh, that need for language and speech and, and what can be conveyed and understood more deeply beyond that as well. So anyways, thank you, Sarah. Okay, who uh, who else wants to hop in here on anything we're talking about today? Hi, Gary. Good morning, everyone. Hope all is well. Uh, I want to take off a little bit from what Sarah said. I, I'm conflicted with how we use the word truth. Uh, to me, uh, that's where we've kind of created a, a a problem in the world with with truth. Uh, you know, we all we everybody seems today, especially in the political world, everybody has their own truth. So, you know, each person uh, is, is trying to, uh, uh, trying to search for their own truth and that, that own truth can, can create issues. Uh, you know, you have Christian truth, you have Jewish truth, you have Islamic truth. Uh, and uh, so where do we, where, what is truth anymore? You know, in, in one regards, we say truth is backed up by facts, but, if we're talking about personal truth is how can we back that up by by facts it's it's what we personally believe uh and if it's personally believe in negative things then 
creates hatred and racism and all those other things. It doesn't improve uh, our personal lives. It, well, to some it improves and other people it, it creates bigger bigger issues. So I, I'm very conflicted with the word truth anymore. Uh, I think it, at one point uh, we, we felt it was very uh, made us more secure and now it makes makes me personally insecure in, in the world because we don't know what truth is uh, anymore. Uh, that's that, that like kind of kind of take it from there. But I, I wanted you mentioned something earlier, uh, and and I wonder how you feel about this. Is you know, how do we we look at text? How do we decide what text we decide to uh, be literal, and what text do we decide to expound upon and look at it literally, not literally, but figuratively, mm-hmm. uh, which I, which I find interested in, in in Judaism, where we have this large spectrum of orthodoxy all the way to to very reformed, and just to throw out you know the thing of homosexuality, we have one side that says we're not going to touch it. It says this way in Torah, and then of course on, on the far other end, we have a complete different meaning and interpretation. So uh, I just I'll leave it at that and. Okay. Okay, great. So to Gary's first point, I'm going to punt that back to the group in terms of, geez, this whole problem of truth, conflicts between religions and peoples and claims to truths and how divisive this can be. And yet we don't abandon truth either. So what do we do with this whole problem of the relativity of truth? um, And, um, and also, you know, what that means for society building. And Gary said it much better than I just said it. But throwing that back to everyone there. And then on the second point of of when do we take text literally and when not, um, this is true both for text messages we get on our phones. When do I read somebody's text message literally versus not literally? And it's also true for text ourselves. It's very funny, actually, um, the inconsistencies in how people read text, um, when they want to read it literally and when not. For example, someone like, of course, I don't believe the text, you know, the world is created in seven days, as the text literally says. But of course, when the when the text says, love your fellow as yourself, it means it literally. Or of course, when it says that there were slave reparations in Exodus, that, that means today, politically, we advocate for slave reparations. Or when it says this about abortion, that that's what it literally means. So people, based on their political agenda, will take literal verses out of the text and say, the, the, the text says this, right? And and yet other texts say, of course, I don't believe that we should read the text literally. And so, uh, Gary, you're exposing a great problem in um, the inconsistencies of our faith communities and where we do um, literal reads and where not. And um, I think that's something worth really thinking about deeply. Um, and, um, uh, and 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 I, I see this, for example, in many progressive Jewish spaces that have zeroed um, interest in kind of the religious Jewish experience of the text, that will pull out verses with a literal read to advocate a certain progressive agenda. Of course, the conservative side does that as well, and just in different ways. Um, but I find that very interesting how kind of the Bible is used politically um, when the Bible's read literally. And in other texts, it's, it's not. So anyways, th- thanks for all you said there. Follow up with that. was some That was exactly what I was thinking that Gary just brought up, that if, if Orthodox Jews read the text literally, then what are they studying all the time? 
what's being studied all the time, if it's right there and it says what it says, then what what's there to talk about? That that was my first question I'll just throw out there. And the second thing I wanted to comment on was science versus nature. Because I feel like science, you said, you know, that science wants answers, but there's contradictions all the time in science. Think of medication. There's a medication that is invented or developed to cure a certain problem, but then the list of the things that it could cause instead are contradictions for what the initial problem that was trying to be solved was sought out in the first place. So, you know, you have to determine, you have to balance and decide what you're going to, you, are you going to use this and perhaps get this instead? I mean, so science isn't exacting either, you know, it's, it's, it wants answers, but it sometimes it throws out more questions than medical. So those are my two things. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Within the findings themselves, not to mention conflicting research. Of course, there's constantly conflicting research and conflicting studies and which studies do you give weight to. And part of, part of becoming a scientist or, or a doctor at any level is kind of learning how to make sense of all that that's coming out, which studies to kind of give more weight to and how to balance all that. And how much when talking to a patient, do you tell them all of that versus give what most people want is the answer, right? <laughs> Gary, you could tell us, you could tell us how it is, um, right? People, a lot of people want confidence. So too, some, if somebody asks me, what's the Jewish approach on X, I, I have to very quickly decide, is this somebody who wants like an hour lecture of 50 con conflicting views over the last 2000 years? Or is this someone who wants you to say, the walk left, take the left road, right? Um, many people come for a rabbi for questions because they want a simple answer. And many come because they want to learn the contradictions. And so too with a doctor. I think very few people talking to their doctor want the, uh, want the lecture of what 10 different conflicting research studies say. I think most want to know what should I do tomorrow, you know? And that's okay. That's okay, you know? And so, yeah. So anyways, thank you for that. And on your first great point there also, uh, Cheryl, um, what is there to discuss if text is all literal? And, um, you know, that's why the Talmud is one of the greatest gifts in this tradition of just uh, this constant, you know, uh, this constant debate and, you know, um, and, and re reinterpretation and um, kind of this ongoing living discourse that never dismisses the literal read but is always transcending it, look, being, looking beyond it. Um, okay, dear friends, um, Steve, you're going to give us our last word here, and then we're going um, um, to... I, I, I feel terrible because Lauren was before me, so you could go over to her. No, it's because we, we, we had the pleasure of learning from Lauren already. I'd love to hear her again, um, but we didn't get to hear from you yet. So, To me, truth is the way someone acts or what someone does. That is as close to the truth as I, I, I can get. Truth is also a rule until it is not a rule. The, the rules in the Super Bowl for what happens uh, in overtime, they are non-controversial. How we act, though, is, or what we do is truth. Okay, very cool. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much. Um, it is so lovely to be with you all. Um, next week, we're going to be going into a 
one of the leaders, living leaders of secularism and of science, uh, Daniel Dennett, uh, neuroscientist, and um, and going into the into brain because now the brain enters brain science enters the world of philosophy. Lots to talk about. Okay, friends, have a beautiful day, and can't wait to see you next Tuesday. Thank you so much. Many blessings.